In, uh, in November of 1993, the U.S. News and World Report published the results of a survey that were conducted by the Congressional Quarterly Researcher. The survey was entitled, quote, How Times Have Changed, unquote. And, re and it recorded in this particular survey the responses of public school teachers as they were asked to rate the top disciplinarian pr disciplinary problems that they faced. Their answers reflect the moral decline of our nature, na nation and clearly demonstrate how times have indeed changed. The answers that were given by the teachers were then compared to answers given by teachers to a similar question that was asked in 1940. So I thought it would be interesting to compare the two answers. What do you think the top disciplinary problems were for teachers in 1940? Now listen now, some of you were there. <laughs> now come on now, and this is your chance to get something right. So, yeah, oh, yeah, I hear you. The top disciplinary problems that teachers faced in 1940. What? <laughs> Yeah, very good, very good. That was really good. She's down there going like this. gum. That could be, yes it was. That was number two. Chewing gum was number two. Spitballs. No. Talking. Talking? Talking out of turn. The number one disciplinary problem of 1940 was talking out of turn. Okay, chewing gum was number two. What, what else? Huh? What? Smoking? No, yeah, that was the 50s, survey in the 50s. Uh, no, that wasn't on there. Number four, running in the halls. Running, hey, 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 stop that running in the halls now. Number four, what else? Yeah, this is 1940, buddy. Come on, now. Take tails in the inkwell. Jot that one down for future reference. A little too much Little House on the Prairie you've been tuning into there, big guy. All right, what else? Tardy, no, sorry. What? Cheating. Nope. Not cheating. What? Sending notes, no. Fighting, no. Getting out of your seat, no. Tardiness, no. Here they are, the top, top seven, starting in reverse. Number seven, littering. Number six, dress code violations. I didn't write these, I'm just reading them now. Number five, cutting in line. Ooh. Yeah, if you want, that's fine, you can do that. Number four, running in the halls. Number three, the infamous, making noises. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Making noises. Now who's making that noise? And then we already got the other ones. Number two, chewing gum and the number one disciplinary problem of 1940, talking out of turn. All right. All right. 1993. Oh, that's all right, though, close. Well, you got to remember now, surveys take a while to publish. Number seven. 
Public high school teachers were surveyed the top seven disciplinary problems that they face in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, chewing gum, no. Number seven, <laughs> number seven, taking hostages, no. <laughs> that was actually number, that was number eight, I'm sure, but it's not on the top seven. Number seven, assault. Number six, robbery. Number five, rape. Number four, suicide. Number three, teen pregnancy. Number two, alcohol abuse. Number one, drug abuse. Top seven disciplinary problems that public school teachers face today. What has happened in America over the past 50 years has been the moral erosion of our soul. We've lost our moral compass as it relates to right and wrong behavior, and as a result, each individual is left to determine on their own what they believe is right and what they believe is wrong. And that is reflected in the problem that we're going to discuss today, which is the problem of alcohol and drug, and drug abuse. The teacher survey ranked drug and alcohol abuse number one and number two as the two top disciplinary problems that they face. Oh, I'm sure many a teacher today would long for days where chewing gum and running in the halls were the only thing they had to deal with. How serious is the problem? Well, I, you know, I, I was thinking as I was putting this together, probably a simple show of hands would probably even be more of a vivid demonstration as to how real the problem is. Let me ask you a question. And it's not necessarily you, but it's, it can be you or someone you know. If you or someone you know has had a drinking problem, raise your hand. Look around. If you or someone you know has a problem with drugs, raise your hand. Not quite as many. And, and obviously, alcohol is a drug, but I'm referring to something different when I'm referring to drugs. A recent Gallup poll confirms our suspicion and says that it's a major problem. 81% of adults said they considered alcoholism to be a major national problem. One out of every three families say they have been affected in some way with drug or alcohol abuse. And it's probably higher than that because almost every person in here raised their hand for one of the two questions. So despite all of this, it's also important to note, according to James D. Hunter in his book entitled Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation, it's important to note how young people feel about the problem. And this is a survey that was taken of seven evangelical Christian colleges, a survey that was taken of the students that go to Christian colleges. In 1951, 98% believed that drinking and drug use was wrong. In 1961, 78% believed that drinking was wrong. And in 1982, 17% believed that drinking was wrong. Well, goodness, something's definitely happened there, and the trend is definitely changing. But what about something more recent? You know, typically what I do is, is I read through whatever newspapers, magazines, if something comes of interest that has to do with something that we'll discuss, I just clip them out and throw them in a folder and kind of line them all up. This is the last two months of either newspaper articles or magazines or whatever. This was the Los Angeles Times. And this was in February of this year. The article was entitled, Orange County High School Students, News and Views. 
Is drug use among high school students on the increase? Yes, according to a survey by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. The Institute has been tracking this question for nearly 19 years. For the past 10 years, the answer had been no. However, in the past year, the survey finds that the trend has reversed. Across the country, 50,000 junior and senior high school students were surveyed about the use of marijuana and other illegal drugs. Among 10th graders, the share using marijuana went from 15 to 19% in the past year. The percentage of 12th graders smoking the drug increased from 21 to 26%. The number of seniors who reported using an illegal drug at least once increased from 40 to 43%. The number compares to a peak of 65% reported in 1981, and the trend has been going in the opposite direction until the past year. June 22nd, teens' use of drugs on the rise. More than one in four California high school students are heavy drinkers by their junior year, and teenagers' use of other drugs is on the rise, according to the state survey that was released on Tuesday. A survey of 5,600 students in public junior, high school, public junior high and high schools found fewer youth trying cocaine compared to eight years ago, but after declining use among California teenagers in the late 1980s, amphetamines, marijuana, and LSD are now on the rebound. Feed your head at Chapman U. Few places scream counterculture less than Chapman University with its stately buildings, manicured lawns, and conservative students. But Thursday, acid aficionados in tie-dye t-shirts and ponytails swarmed the campus for an all-day psychedelic symposium featuring lectures on shamanism, psychomusicalism, alchemy, hemp, and the new frontiers of psychedelic research. Obviously, somebody on acid wrote the article. <laughs> no one was more dazzled by the incongruity of the locale than featured speaker Ram Dass, a former Harvard professor turned guru of the consciousness-raising movement. The thought that I would come to Chapman College in Orange County for this, my mind just cannot grok it. Oh, he's using a 60s-era term that loosely translates, I like that they get translated, as uh, my mind cannot comprehend it. Thank you very much for the translation. There you go. Ram Dass spoke reverently of the March day in 1961 when Timothy Leary gave him his first hallucinogenic mushroom. The inner validity of the experience of us was so profound. I am still growing into it now. Psychedelic drugs, though illegal and considered dangerous by much of society, has experienced a resurgence of late as old-time advocates extol their mind-expanding qualities and young people are increasingly exposed to them on the club scene. It goes on. Oh, this is, it says, uh, This was not a crowd that mourned the passing of Richard Nixon, although the topic came up often today. Quote, Today is an omen of the rebirth of the counterculture, said the master of ceremonies. Today he's dead and we're not, said hip hypnotherapist and talk show host Michael Benner. That makes it a beautiful day in my neighborhood, if you ask me. Many of the participants said they were just regular folks who happened to drop acid. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got that, because it's like nobody else did. I'm reading this going, yeah, just regular old folks just dropping acid now. Irvine real estate appraiser. Now, this is good. Now, Mike Carroll, check it out. He may be working for you. Irvine real estate appraiser Mike Carroll, 46, said he hadn't taken psychedelics since the 60s, but he started again recently after listening to advocates discuss their potential for good. And it's taken him 30 years to, to remember the 60s, and, and, and now it's like, well, I don't remember it being that bad. 
Oh, what else do we got? Uh, there's another one in this. Heroin use is on the rise among young professionals, as is evident by the recent deaths of Kurt Corbain and River Phoenix. The new drug is heroin, heroin, which a generation ago may have evoked the specter of the ultimate dead end, but for users too tender to remember, it's once again unfolding its black crepe wing. See, the, the, uh, the proponents of heroin have come up with a heroin that you don't have to use a needle now, so they, they've made it user-friendly, keeping with the computer terms. And, uh, you know, needles turn people off, so now they've come up with forms that you don't have to use needles. So that's on the rise. What else do we got? Well, let's see, Jennifer Capriotti. That's, eh, well, she's not on the rise. She's on the decline. Um, study Orange County kids smoke at double the U.S. rate, May 1994. Nearly one in seven Orange County 12, 13, and 14-year-olds surveyed said they smoked, almost double the rate found by national studies. These results indicate that among young people, smoking is an even bigger problem than we've ever imagined. And then we all know about the controversy of the FDA and, and uh, adding chemicals and nicotine-enhanced cigarettes that are on the market today. And I like what the one cigarette manufacturer said. Said that uh, nicotine occurs naturally in cigarette, cigarette smoke. Forty years ago, it appeared in cigarettes at nearly three times the level it does today. But as tar and other harmful components of cigarette smoke have been reduced, nicotine levels have also dropped. The companies say that when the levels drop too low, cigarettes are not as satisfying to smokers. I wonder why that is. Can't have anything to do with any drugs or chemicals that may be in there, huh? Let me see what else. Ah, that's not. It makes for fascinating reading, doesn't it? And it also makes for an interesting point as it relates to the problem of drug and alcohol abuse in our culture. Um, we've got a serious problem, and the more people I talk to and the more stories that I hear and the more research that I read, the more I realize how important it is for Christians to be informed so that we can offer solid counsel to people that are struggling in these areas of their life. It's critical that we have good, solid information, information that's not going to change next week. You know, we've got, you know, one person debates the other person, whatever, and they come up with all the counter arguments and all that kind of stuff. But the, but the one question that continually is asked as you go through this process, anybody that's ever struggled with drugs in their life, anyone that's ever struggled with someone who is struggling with drugs in their life or alcohol has always asked the question, how in the world does this happen? How does this happen? Talk to a friend who had a cocaine habit. It was like sitting down, he's like, man, I don't even know. How did this start? How did it happen? How did it begin? I don't even know what happened to me. But I tell you right now, I know what's happened over the last two years, and I'm still trying to figure it all out. Basically, every research that's come out has indicated that there's a sure path to destruction, and it's the same pattern over and over again. Whether it's drug abuse, whether it's alcohol abuse, no matter what it is, it's the same pattern. The pattern starts this way. It starts with a social type of experience. It starts with people in our society who advocate, advocate that, that it's harmless, that it's, it's just social. Uh, I can do it if I want to do it, but I can also stop when I want to stop, and it's not that big a deal, and it's no harm to it, no harm, no foul, you know, no blood, no foul, whatever, and, and that's the way that it is. And in reality, if you think about every person that's struggled with an addiction in their life, be it alcohol or drug addiction, the same thing is true. It's all started in a social environment. And it's important to understand one other thing, and it's always introduced to a person by someone that they know and that they trust or that they're friends with or they want to be friends with or they want to become friends with. 
think about your own personal experience. And let me ask you a question. Do you remember the first time someone offered you an alcoholic beverage? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember who you were with? Do you remember what happened? Do you remember everything about it? Do you remember the first time that someone introduced you to an illegal drug of any kind? Whether somebody said, here, you want to hit on a joint, or you want to do some coke, or you want to drop some acid, or whatever. I mean, do you remember where you were, and do you remember what happened? I vividly remember. I remember the first time somebody offered me a drink. I remember the first time that someone said, hey, you want to smoke a joint? I remember where I was, and I remember it was with people that I liked and was friends with. I remember in high school. When I was a foot, playing football, having guys on our team after practice saying, hey, do you want to smoke a joint with us? Not the stereotype, quote, stereotypical drug type user. And, the, and it's important to understand that we're not introduced to these things by some ugly troll that lives under a bridge somewhere yelling, come here a minute. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? See, temptation and sin is always packaged in an attractive wrapping and it's usually with people that you know you respect or you like you look at them doing it and say they're not bad people so this can't be a bad thing it always starts this way but it always leads to this it always leads to a form of dependency of some type what started out as social and quote fun and let's have a good time ends up being I now need that I need that to get through the day I need it to survive. I, I need it to pick me up in the morning so that I can attack a busy day. I need it to put me to sleep at night because now I'm all wound up. So I'm taking uppers to get going. I'm taking downers or Valium or something else to put me to sleep at night. And I realize that we've got a very interesting dilemma here because we're talking about an over-the-counter drug as well as those who are illegal. But this, this, the guidelines are going to be good for all of them. We need to understand why do we need these things? Why do we need something to get us picked up? Why do we need something to put us down? Why do we need something to, to uh, get us through the day? And that w is where you enter into that dependency thing. I have to have this, but I also believe that I can stop at any time. I, I, I need it, but I don't really need it. You follow what I'm saying? And that leads to the third step, which is usually problematic from the standpoint that this is where it becomes recognizable to people around you. This is where you start to look at someone's behavior and say, man, there's something, there's something fishy going on here. There's something funny going on. I can look at their face, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing too. I mean, I can look at someone's eyes and I know whether they're, whether they're high. I know by the way they ramble what's going on. I may not know what they're taking or what they're doing, but I'll tell you right now, I've had conversations with people in our family. I've had conversations with friends. And, I've had, and I know darn well that they're on something. And they don't think they have a problem. But we can see it, and the reason we know they have a problem is because if you ask them, they say, I don't have a problem. Good. And that's what leads to the fourth step, which is chronic. This is a person that has no control at all. This is a person that, you know, they're so far along in the program that work's not important, family's not important, the kids aren't important, making a living's not important, paying bills isn't important. The only thing that's really important is I have to be able to come up with money either for my next fix or I've got to have my next drink, and that's all that matters in life. I live, I'm mastered by it, I'm consumed by it, and that's all that makes any difference. And the last thing is the destructive phase. That's the phase that if you're wrestling with someone in your family that is somewhere along this path, this is where we usually call it the, you know what, they're going to have to hit bottom stage. 
they're just going to, and whatever bottom is, uh, they're going to have to hit it. And sometimes we don't know what that is. And yet we also know that a lot of times that's what it takes to catch someone's attention that they've got a major problem. It's the destructive stage. It's when everything's out of control and there's no hope other than just God's intervention to the point where he just takes them and he disciplines them and he takes them out to the woodshed and they hit bottom and then they land on... See, because the way I've always seen it is this. When you get knocked on your back, the only place you got to look is up. You see what I'm saying? And God does that quite often in our life. He likes to just kind of give us one of these. Oh, oh, there you are. You know, you know kind of look up. And that's the way it works. President Bush was quoted as saying, alcohol must be recognized for what it is. A drug. Drunk driving must be recognized for what it is, a crime. And both should be dealt with as such. Drugs are a cancer on our society, and alcohol is the most common form of it. This cancer has spread throughout our country, eating away at the basic fabric of society, and more and more often it is affecting our children and the next generation. All that leads to the most important opinion of all, and that is God's. Because the research is there, and the opinions are there, and the doctors are there, and the evidence is there, and the counter-evidence is there, and all these things are there. But in reality, the only thing that makes any difference, it becomes imperative that Christians understand what the Bible says, what the Bible says about alcohol, drunkenness, drunkenness and addiction. And, and, and listen to what I'm saying. It's important that Christians understand what the Bible teaches about alcohol, drunkenness, and addiction. And I want, to try, I want to set something straight that's really been bothering me throughout this whole series on morality. And that is this. As I read through the Bible, and as I look at the judgment of God, God's judgment is always enacted against God's people when they live in disobedience to God's commands. Society falls apart when God's people, who are the moral agents of God as we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, when God's people who are put on this earth to be light and salt do not do what we are called to do. God's people are sanctified. God's people are set apart for God's purposes. The world that has not come to know the love of God through Jesus Christ will drink, will do drugs, will do all the things that the world does because it's just an evidence of the fact that they are sinners that needs saved by Jesus Christ. You follow what I'm saying? This is critical. What I am more concerned about is not the problems of society as a whole because those problems will always exist. It's called sin. What I am more concerned about is the attitude and the prevailing attitude of God's people who have become what the culture around us is trying to mold us into and that is to become like they are. The problem with that is we are not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by a renewing of our mind. We need to understand what God says in the Word of God so that our, our minds are renewed about our personal attitudes about drugs, our personal attitudes about drinking, our personal attitudes even about smoking cigarettes. Now, I realize some of these things are going to be controversial and some of these things are cultural in nature, but on the other hand, we cannot get away from what the Bible teaches on these subjects, and we've got to be willing to be sensitive to the Spirit of God as He guides us into truth as we're confronted with the Word of God. It's God's people, it's the church that is to set the pace and lead society in a way that points them to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
We are not to follow our culture and try to get along with everybody. Try to be one of everybody else. We're not one of everybody else. We're called by God. We're sanctified. We're holy. We're different. We're saved by the grace of God. And our responsibility is to be obedient before God, not to be liked by the world we live in. So as we look at this, it's important to understand what does God say about the whole problem that we have in our culture about drugs and alcohol? What breaks my heart are Christians who don't really have an opinion based on Scripture. And we're going to confront it as we go through it. The first thing that we need to understand, and the most important thing that we have to get across, and it's difficult, and some of the stuff's very difficult, but yet it's true, and that is this. Drunkenness, we'll start with drunkenness, is always treated as sin and not as a disease in the Bible. Drunkenness is always treated as sin and not as a disease in the Bible. And it's important to understand that. Alcoholism can become a disease. Let's not, there's, no, there's no way you can get around that. Alcoholism can become a disease. But God, that's the symptom. The root problem is it's sin. And God says that drunkenness is a sin before God. And it's going to be a problem in that it manifests itself in many different ways. But if you've got your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, as God gives us some insight at, into the problem of drunkenness. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21. It's a fascinating account of a rebellious child. It says, If any man has a stubborn and a rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him or discipline him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him, bring him to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn, he's rebellious, he will not obey us, he is a glutton, and he is a drunkard. Then all of the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it in fear. Hey, there's an idea. No, and obviously that's not the point. The point of what is happening here is that God hates sin. He specifically hates the sin of rebellion. He said rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. It's not to be tolerated. I want you to, I want you to consider a question. A person who's struggling with drunkenness or struggling with alcoholism or struggling even with drug addiction, it's interesting to me that God mentions drunkenness in light of the overall problem of rebellion. Some of the most rebellious people that I know are people that struggle with drugs or alcohol. You can't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I don't have a problem. You have a problem. It's your problem. It's not my problem. And everything is rebellious and rebellion personified. God mentions it in light of the problem of rebellion because one of the symptoms of the problem of rebellion is a person who is struggling with alcohol. God hates rebellion. And by the way, he still hates it today, but thank God that he's changed the methods and how he dealt with it. And we thank God for his grace. 
but he still hates sin and he still judges sin. He just does it in a different way, but God hasn't changed his mind about sin. But I'll, get, I'll, I'll guarantee you this, it probably got some attention. If you were a kid and you were rebellious before your folks and you saw your buddy who was smart-mouthing his mom and dad and did it on a regular basis and had a problem with drugs and alcohol and you saw him finally get so disgusted and frustrated because what that, what that parent understood was, you know what, this is a last resort. Would rather save his soul than, than have his body continue to go on the direction that it's going. So we're taking him and he's going to be judged. And I'll tell you what, every kid in that high school would be like, oh man, you hear it happened to John on Friday? Oh, dude, man. Oh, man. His folks took him out to the gates of the city, man. Oh, man, nuh-uh. Oh, yeah-huh. Oh, I got to quit this stuff. You know what I'm saying? And that's pretty much what goes on. Look at Romans 13, 13 through 14. The Bible says, let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I like how God uses daylight to expose actions. Those who love darkness. They, it said, Jesus said that you know, there were those who love darkness. The Pharisees love darkness. Why? Because they like to hide behind the darkness. They like, to these, uh, you know, they like these clandestine operations. They like to be secretive about what they were doing. And Jesus said that you know, the light exposes the darkness. And the reason that sinners don't like light is because it exposes their deeds and shows that they're not worthy to step into the kingdom of God, not to be present before God, realizing that they're sinners. It exposes it. And, and he's saying, let us behave decently as in the daytime. Saying, hey, listen, believer, you know what? Your life needs to be an open book. God's exposing you. It's like every place that we walk as a, as a child of God, there's a spotlight on us from heaven. And you can't hide from it. You can't sneak off into a little corner. You can't go with your friends and do drugs over here, do some drinking over there, and then come to church with your folks and be sitting here and pretend like everything's okay. Listen, sir, listen, ma'am, you can't do the same thing either. You can't be hiding in darkness during the week and then come and pretend you're, quote, religious on Sundays or at your Bible study group, wherever it is you're going. See, God says, behave as if you're exposed to the daylight. As if there's a spotlight following you, buddy, to your job and at lunch when you're out with your clients and your customers, when you're on, your ro on the road, when you're traveling as a salesman and you're sitting down in the bar at night when you shouldn't be there and it's exposing you and the light's shining on you and you better realize you're not to behave like that. Let us behave decently as in the, as in the daytime. Not in orgies, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. All the things that take place behind the scenes, all the things you think are in darkness and nobody sees it. God sees it. He's not mocked by it, you foolish person. What's the matter with you? What kind of God do you think that you serve? Someone's too busy to see what you're doing during the week? You think he's just right now looking, oh, there they are in church, let me check them out. Now, who's there? Oh, my goodness. Can you, don't leave yet now. What do you think? What kind of God are we dealing with? Hey, everything's naked and laid open to him whom we have to do. He says, rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. There's another warning as far as our thought life is concerned. Don't be thinking about, hey, you know what? I want to drink. Don't be thinking about, you know what? I just want to drop some acid. I want to do some heroin. I want to just smoke a joint. I want to do this, I want to do some crack, I want to do some blow, I want to do some coke. Don't be thinking about stuff like that. It all starts in your mind because what we think about, we've seen over and over again, is what we ultimately do. 
don't dwell on these things. But let your mind dwell on those things that are good before God and honorable before God. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Don't dwell on this stuff. I'll guarantee you a person that's struggling with drugs or alcohol, that's all they're thinking about. That's their thought life. Got to have a drink. Got to have some drugs. Got to do it. Even people that smoke, and I want to ask you a question, if you smoke, hey, got to have a smoke. I got to have a smoke. These are tough issues. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to confront one another in love. We're called to look at the Word of God. We're called to obedience as the Spirit of God convicts us in areas of our life. That we're still not measuring up. We're still not being conformed to the image of Christ. It's that one little closet that we still have that's filled with all the dirt that God says, I want to clean it all out. I want it all. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, adulterers, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse says, and such were some of you. Man, you know what? Sometimes you just, it's like, you just want to be able to take some time and, and you want people just to be honest so that others around them can see how gracious God is. And if it didn't put people on the spot, I'd like to just be able to say, look, you know what, sir, ma'am, man, you want to help other people around you? Then, then just kind of just stand up if Jesus Christ has delivered you from alcohol abuse, from drug abuse, from struggling with personal habits that were destroying your life. You see, and such were some of you. I'll tell you what, I thank God, as Paul did. He says, who can set me free from this body of sin? He says, thanks be to God. For who? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who sets us free. I'm telling you, and, and from a per, just from a personal vantage point, I've got a brother that's struggling with drugs. I've got a sister that's struggling with alcohol abuse. I've got an uncle that struggles with drinking. I've got a grandfather who died from drinking abuse. Now let me tell you something. I know the only reason that I don't is because of Jesus Christ. That's it. And it's not because I'm a better person than them. It's because I was just a sinner just as much as they were. The only difference was I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's it. That is the only thing that differentiates me from them. That's it. And it's not because I teach Bible study. It's not because I'm this or I'm that. It's none of those things. The only thing that makes me different from them is that I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and they have not. And they are still living in their sin, and that's just one symptom of the problem that they have, and that is that they're dead in their sins. How it manifests itself is in all kinds of different ways. And so the point I'm going to try to make to you so that you understand, if you've got someone who's struggling with drugs or alcohol, and you try to convince them that they should stop smoking dope or doing drugs or drinking and all these things, that's a wonderful thing. And what it'll do is it'll avoid the consequences of those actions while they're here on earth. But if you do not tell them the only way they could be free from sin is by trusting in Jesus Christ, all that they will do is die sober and still go straight to hell. 
That's it. Don't ever confuse the two. Now, that's good because we don't want to experience the consequences of drug and alcohol abuse. But what's more important in the long run is where they spend eternity. Don't lose sight of that. Most wonderful stories, and you know it, and I know it, and we can go around the room, and you can stand up, and you can tell me that what I just said is true, that Jesus has saved you from exactly that same lifestyle, that that's where you were. You were doing acid. You were smoking dope. You were having a problem drinking. You were abusing your spouse. You were you know, cheating on so-and-so. You were doing everything you can imagine, and you know what? It's like when you put your faith and trust in Christ, he grabbed you. He made you clean. He made you whole. You're on your way to heaven. Now all he's doing is working it out. He's working out your salvation in light of everything that's going on in front of the people around you so that they'll be attracted to turn to Jesus. That's it. Man, and you know what? And if that's the only point that I share, and the only point that you learn, and the only point that you leave here with, that's much more than most of us will ever do with it. But what about drug abuse? The Bible says the same thing. Non-medicinal use of drugs is also treated as a sin. Non-medicinal use of drugs is also treated as a sin. And it's important to understand that. Because as we look at this in Galatians 5, 19 and 20, we read this. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. There's sexual immorality. There's impurity. There's debauchery. There's idolatry. And there's witchcraft. Now, it's important to understand what's being talked about here. In this particular translation, it says witchcraft. Others call it sorcery. And we need to realize that sorcery... The, the, uh, the Greek word that's used that we get our English word pharmaceutical is referring specifically to drugs. So if you want, in our culture, to understand it better, God's saying, you know what? The acts of the sinful nature are drug usage. Drug usage. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, and factions. Drug usage. It's fascinating to me, if you think about it, that in religious rites or idolatrous practices, drug usage was an important part of their quote-unquote worship of that deity. If you read that psychedelic symposium at Chapman University, many people related it to a spiritual awakening. It was a spiritual situation. If you see ancient Indian rites or whatever that are, that are um, promoted, uh, you'll see that there is drug usage involved in calling upon higher spirits, so to speak, or to call upon the spirit world. Drug usage was an integral part of worshiping false gods. And what God is saying is that, no, you know what, there is no other God before me. And if you are into this lifestyle, then you are into an, an idolatrous lifestyle that you are far from me, and all you're doing is it's evident of the fact that you've got a problem. Drug usage. It's fascinating. Revelation 21, 8 speaks of those who are in hell and says this of them. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, drug users or sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Drug users. Now, I need to make this very clear because the last time we, we, when we were speaking on homosexuality, uh, that same verse is used in the same context 
And, uh, and in Revelation 22:15, it says, Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie, speaking again of drug usage in the context of all these other things. Now, what we need to understand, and it's important to realize, can a person who is a Christian get caught up in using drugs? Please answer this. Out loud. Of course, please. Can a person who is a Christian get caught up in sexual immorality? Absolutely. Can a person who is a Christian get caught up in a, a lifestyle or habit of lying? Yes. The, the, the warning of the passage, and we need this very, very clearly understood, is that God forgives sin, but he also warns of those who live in a lifestyle that God calls a sinful lifestyle or one that's in disobedience, he warns that if you're a person who lives in that lifestyle, who is not convicted by the Spirit of God of the wrong in which you are doing before God, who can continue living in a lifestyle and endorse it and say there's nothing wrong with it, that there's not a problem with it, that God loves me anyway. Now, you may say these things outwardly, but only God really knows in your heart what you're thinking inside. See what I'm saying? So, but I'm talking about in your heart, if you're a person that says, I'm a homosexual and there's nothing wrong with it, I am a drunk and there's nothing wrong with drinking, I am a drug addict and there's nothing wrong with doing drugs, it gives me this higher experience and this da-da-da-da, I am this or that or the other thing, and God says, if you are these things and there is no remorse in your heart, there is no repentance in your heart, there is no contrition in your heart, there is no brokenness in your heart, even though you may put up a tough act to people around you, but you know inside that you're being convicted by the Spirit of God, if none of that is going on in your life, then it's evidence that you've never come to know Christ, and as a result, you're going to a place prepared for you called the lake of fire, or what we like to call hell. Follow that? That's tough stuff. But it's truth. And we need to understand what the truth is because the truth will set us free. A person who tells me I can live in this lifestyle and, it, and there's nothing wrong with it and you know what, I know God and I've accepted Christ and I was 8 years old or 12 years old or 50 years old or whatever and I, and I can do all these things and none of it bothers me, then you better examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith, the biblical faith, as God lays it out, not as other people may have explained it to you, or not have you convinced yourself in your own heart. This is critical. We need to understand this. The Bible speaks of drunkenness as a sin. The Bible speaks of drug usage as a sin before God. And it's one that you cannot continue to live in if you call yourself a Christian because it is wrong before God and our objective as God's people is to always concede our will to His. Not my will be done, but yours. Teach me the truth and let me walk in it in all confidence and boldness that I'm doing right before you. We need to understand all of this because it's dangerous. And the next time we'll look at the rest of it. But I want to, I want to read something to you that, man, it just, it just broke my heart when I read it. And it was like, man, alive. Can you imagine? In that article... It has to do with Orange County High School students. Okay, let me, let me read something to you. And, man, I can't think of a better way to just kind of wrap these two things up. But here's a, here's a kid, this kid, here's a teenager, 16 years old. He's an honor student at a local high school. And he writes his own account of his drug usage. And he says this, I started doing drugs again this semester. Mostly bud, which is not beer, it's marijuana. 
and shrooms, which are psychedelic mushrooms. They started coming my way again at the end of last semester, right before finals. It'll probably take me 10 years to figure out what happened in the last six months. I was a good student until last semester when I got really, really sick of school. Before that, I was an A and B student. I've taken a lot of honors courses, still take them. Mostly, I party on the weekends, sometimes during the weeks, last, like last night, which was an honorary weekend. I've smoked out the past three weekends. I'm not into it as much as before. I'm sort of bored with it. I don't dislike it. It's more like, you know, why not use it? It enhances things. I don't mind not spending on it. It's nothing special. I don't care that I do it. It's just something I do. Maybe it's a subconscious attempt at suicide. I used to exercise, take good care of myself. I drink lots of coffee. Recently, I started smoking cigarettes. I like smoking. It's cheaper than smoking cloves. I don't want to live to be a thousand and one. Seventy years old would be okay, but if you ask me in 20 years, my answer might be different. I'm not very good at focusing on things. It's funny, I used to be involved in Just Say No to Drugs campaigns. I even met Nancy Reagan. In seventh grade, a friend smoked me out. Follow that? A friend smoked me out. He had just hit on me. He just had it on him. He was a family friend a few years older. He didn't, know what he, was, he didn't know that I was doing it for my first time. It wasn't a big deal. I got a little high. We probably went to the beach or shopping. I don't even remember. At first, I'd use it once every three or four months, starting in ninth grade. My friends and I would use it about three out of four weekends. We didn't go to the parties. We just hung out. We'd think, like, wouldn't it be funny if we smoked a joint in the parking lot of the Rick, Richard Nixon library? It was just something that we did. It wasn't an issue. Somebody would have, somebody would have it and would use it. Most of the time, someone had some, of them, some on them. Most were my same age and up. They were school friends and camp friends. I'd always get it from friends and I, who would buy it and get it from someone's backyard. Sometimes we smoke, sometimes we use it as seasoning and omelets, cookies, pizza, whatever. So if your friends, your, your kids say, I want my friends come over and just throw in a pizza in the oven, you better check it out now. <clears throat> my camp friends, I've known since I was little. At camp, I didn't see people doing it, but I knew that it was around. Now we call it camp, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't usually smoke at school, but lots do. Off and on, it seems like there are times when half the school is high. I don't at school because I, I get annoyed with people and use it as an excuse to yell, so I avoid it there. I've pretty much quit everything at school. I used to be in debate, some clubs, and a junior government program. This semester, I've been able to budget my time. Let me just interject something here. If you've got high school, junior high school age kids, let me tell you something. The best thing you can do for them is to keep them so busy they don't know what hits them. I'm serious. I just finished reading Colin Powell's book, Sacred Valor, and he gave a great illustration of a problem that they were having in Korea. And the problem was they had too much downtime on their hands, and guys were getting in trouble going into whorehouses, and they were getting, you know, they're getting using drugs, and there was racial violence, and there was all kind of stuff going on. He said, so the best thing I could figure out was, man, I just had them work all day long. I had them run, 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 and then when they were done running, I let them have some water, and then they ran some more, then we worked out, then we lifted, then we did this, then we did that. By the end of the night, the last thing anybody was thinking was going into town for some fun. They couldn't even move. I like that. That's, good. That's godly counsel. I'm serious about this. We've got a kid on our baseball team this year whose parents won't let him quit. He's a goof-off. 
But on the other hand, I realize one thing that's important. His parents are making him participate in sports because they know he has a, 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 a tendency to get in trouble with the friends that he hangs out with. And while he's there, they're not there. And at least there's, a, there's, there's something there. And so rather than having an attitude like, gee, I wish this kid would quit because he's really useless, it's I'm glad that he's here and maybe we can make something positive happen with this experience so that he doesn't end up just being a gangbanger that walks away from this team and we never see him again. I read about him someday in the paper. You see how we can get so caught up and confused about really what's important in life that we lose sight of the most important thing of all and that is the lives of people around us. Anyway, the point is this. You got kids in high school, you got kids in junior high school, you just keep them so busy. You check on their friends, you make sure you know their parents, you make sure you know where they're going, you make sure they know when they're coming. You go and you be involved in their life and you get involved because it's obvious the people who aren't involved don't even know what their kids are doing. And this is a kid right in the story. And he says this, I'm dropping plans to try for an Ivy League school. Maybe I'll get a job and go to junior college for a year. I just can't, I just, I can't focus for some reason. My parents are really cool about drugs. They'd say, we would like you to do them at home if you're going to do them. They thought they were preachy. They thought if they were preachy, I would be rebellious. And you know what? He's probably right. And that's why you do the old diversion technique. You instruct, you teach, but you keep them so busy that it's not the primary focal point. They don't even realize what the focal point is, but if all you're doing is getting someone's face about it, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, don't do drugs. That's like saying, hey, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, okay? That's the only one I can't do? Then it sounds like a challenge to me. You see what happens when we start to don't, 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 don't. Hey, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. You keep them busy doing other things. When I have a kid going up to the plate, I say, don't strike out. The only thing he's thinking, I can't strike out. Oh, I just struck out again. That's what always works. What you tell him is, hey, you know what? Hit the ball to right. Hit the ball to left. Hit the ball up the middle. Hit the ball to the right side. Hit the ball to the left side. You tell him what to do positively. You don't tell him what to do negatively. Because inevitably, every time you tell him, don't strike out, coach, what do they do? They strike out. That's the way it works. So you don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Hey, you know what? Do this. Do this. Do this. When you're done with that, then come and see me because then you're going to do this. Man. My parents smoke pot, and I smoke pot, but we don't do it in front of each other. They like to get drunk at night. I like to get drunk. Sometimes when I come home, my mom says, did you smoke out tonight? I think she has mixed feelings, though. She told me not to do shrooms. I think sometimes she had a bad experience maybe once on those. You have to be very careful where you get them because they can be poisonous. I only buy shrooms from people I know. I always split what we have between how many people there are. So there might be several each of just a stem and a small piece. They make me really happy. There's a certain contentment. Everything's in sync. When I come down, all of a sudden, it's like vacation's over. I'm not concerned about getting busted. I'm not concerned about being underage. Last week, I hallucinated for the first time. Lots of people are doing speed now. Taking drugs is like smoking or eating sugar. It's kind of a philosophy. Today, I'm doing all my homework so I can have an unrestricted, fun weekend. I plan to see a lot of friends in L.A. I plan to do a lot of drugs. That is so pathetic. And you know what? It all starts at home. There's no way you can get around it, folks. What kind of role model? What kind of example? 
Our folks smoke dope, I smoke dope, but we just don't do it in front of each other because it makes us all feel pretty uncomfortable. I drink, my kids drink, but we just don't do it in front of each other because it makes us all feel a little uncomfortable. I'm stupid, they're stupid. <laughs> but we just don't do it in front of each other because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Let's pray. Father, we just are just at a loss at times as we look at the, the devastation and the tragedy in the world around us. God, help us to see how we as your people often contribute to the confusion that takes place in the world. God, help us to, uh, as we investigate your word and dig into it, have a clear understanding and, and clearly defined convictions of what you say are right and wrong behavior. God, there's no question, while we may debate on whether having a drink is a sin, there's no question that drunkenness is. We may debate on using illegal drugs as to whether or not they're beneficial or not. But then on the other hand, we need to understand the warnings that you lay out. God, I would pray that all of us would be open-minded and our hearts would be open to listen to truth because we know that your truth is the only thing that sets us free. And Father, I just want to thank you for Jesus Christ. For without him, I would be no different than many who struggle with similar problems in the world that we live in. Those who are struggling with drugs and alcohol, those who are struggling in immorality, those who are struggling with other conduct that's just not appropriate before you. God, I realize as I look back that I was a slave to all of those things. And yet I also realize because of your grace and because of your mercy that Jesus Christ set me free. And God, may we never get tired of praising you for that. May we never get confused as to any righteousness of our own that we could take credit for. But may we always understand there is none righteous, no, not one. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we just thank you and praise you that there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than Jesus Christ. And we just thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. We thank you for the abundant life that he gives us. We thank you for the joy and the peace and the uh, lack of guilt and burdens that we now do not have because he has taken them away. And we just praise you in his name. Amen.